Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this Survivor Stories series episode, our guest is Sarah Strong, a protective parent and survivor of domestic violence and coercive control, a fitness instructor, a power lifter, and a health advocate. Sarah talks about her whirlwind romance with her ex-husband, whom she met in March 2016, married three months later in June 2016, and divorced earlier this year. Today, Sarah shares with us her story of how her appeals for help from the courts and the military during her marriage and divorce has transformed her thinking about relationships, parenting, and her body. Sarah offers her story as both a cautionary tale of what to look for and what to avoid in a relationship and in a parenting partner, and how to recover when your choices lead you astray. We will also talk about the role that powerlifting has had in helping shape Sarah's healing and to manage the ongoing stress in her life. Welcome, Sarah. Hi. Thank you for joining us and for sharing your story today. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be able to do that. Let's begin with your relationship. You have described your marriage and the courtship process as, quote unquote, love bombing. Can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely. When my ex-husband and I first met, he just showered me with tons of adoration. He promised me everything I thought I wanted at the time. It was like cookie cutter relationship where it was definitely too perfect. Intense feelings of what I thought was love, but really seemed to be a tactic to like manipulate and get me into the relationship. So you met him in March of 2016 and you married in June of 2016. What were some of the ways in which he was able to appeal to your sensibilities to get you to commit so quickly? I'm not really sure. I mean, I guess, like I said, there was just a lot of like promises that he would take care of me and take care of me and my daughter that I had from a previous relationship and just pretty much saying he would provide everything that I thought I wanted in a relationship and in starting a family to give stability, to just make me feel loved when in reality, once we got married, that turned into like what I owed him because what he had done for me and what what he was providing for me or how he was loving me, it then became a, well, you're not doing enough and kind of a contest with that. One of the previous guests that we had in our show also had children prior to her relationship with her now ex-husband. And she spoke about how that was something that really informed how she viewed herself and her value and how she very quickly also accepted a marriage and a relationship with someone who who used the fact that she had children later on to kind of set up this, like you said, transactional situation where she was owed because he chose her because of her children and in spite of her children, rather. Is that something, do you think, that played into your decision? Yeah, definitely. And I think just 
a little bit on my part of having just like some insecurity and thinking that no one else would would want to take on a single mom and provide for that. And then so him coming in and saying he would do that. Yes, I did start to feel like I, I owed him something and, and he started to make that very clear in our relationship. Yeah. And I just also want, it's interesting to make that, to contrast, you know, how sort of everyday folks like ourselves view ourselves when we're in that situation and what our status is relative to celebrities, right? Because you have so many single female celebrities like Sandra Bullock, Charlize Theron, and obviously Angelina Jolie, and they were all single moms before they had their respective relationships. And I'm wondering, you know, if that actually impacted them. I'm guessing maybe not, not as much as it does for the rest of us. And I feel like part of that is really because of the financial stability and wealth that they have that gives them more security to think about other choices in some ways. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, I completely agree. And that's actually just where my mind was going was that there was, you know, financial security in combining forces and, you know, thinking I had a, a partner in in tackling all of my struggles and, you know, just being able to have somewhere safe to live and be able to have a home together. Later on in our relationship, though, whenever we would argue, he was very quick in the beginning to say, oh, we'll have our home and this is our stuff. But when we argued, it was, this is mine. And he tried to kick me out of our apartment, even while pregnant, saying it was his and in in his name. And I wouldn't have it if it wasn't for him. So even I remember those very words, you wouldn't even have this place if it wasn't for me. And it was like all those things that he had promised and we had supposedly built our, our life together on became weapons in any sort of argument or confrontation. Mm. And so you married in June, 2016 and you became pregnant in November, 2016. Was there any change from June to November with the pregnancy impact the relationship dynamics and how he treated you? Yes, definitely. And I don't know what it is exactly. And I have read a statistic that I think the majority of women start getting physically abused by their spouses when they're pregnant. So it's very prevalent that for some reason, pregnancy triggers this response in a lot of men. And it was when I first got pregnant that he first physically assaulted me. So we had been arguing a lot, but that was the first time that he had actually put his hands on me. And again, I'm not sure exactly what it was about me being pregnant that triggered that in him, but I did notice just a change in his attitude, his possessiveness, his anger once I did get pregnant. At that time, were you working or in school? I was working, yeah. So throughout our relationship, I worked full-time and still do as a personal trainer. And did the pregnancy impact his views on your employment status and whether or not you should continue to work? No, he wasn't controlling in that way. In fact, I think more so rather than wanting me to stop working, he wanted me to continue working as well as like after having the baby to just maintain good employment so that we were kind of on equal status with finances, I guess. So that you could continue to contribute in other words. Yes. Okay. And then you miscarried your baby in January of 2017. Was there something that precipitated that? I did. And I can't say for certain what it was that caused it. It was an earlier miscarriage around 10 weeks. But at that time, a week before I found out I had lost the baby was the first time he had put his hands on me in an argument. We had been arguing and he pushed me down, climbed on top of me, pinned me with his body 
hand one hand over my mouth so I couldn't scream. And I just remember being terrified and thinking that the baby was hurt because he had he had pushed me down. He was keeping me from even being able to breathe really with his hand there. And this man is you know much larger than me. He was a trained Marine. He was active duty Marine Corps while we were together. I just felt completely helpless. And it was about a week after that, that we found out that the baby had passed. So again, I don't know for certain that that's what caused it, but I think it definitely could be a contributing factor with how I lost that pregnancy. When that happened, how did he respond? Was he emotionally affected by it? With the miscarriage? Yes. Yes, I think so. I mean, honestly, it was really hard to say. I became very emotionally affected and struggled with some postpartum depression after that. And that episode of depression following the miscarriage became leverage for him to manipulate me and tell me I wasn't good enough. And then even later, using court saying I wasn't a stable parent and trying to get custody taken away from me. So I feel like his emotions at the time that I saw, I thought were genuine. But looking back, I feel like maybe it wasn't genuine. and It was just part of a tactic to have evidence against me. So when you miscarried and you were in the hospital getting, I guess, a, a checkup, did you share anything that happened that precipitated possibly in your mind the miscarriage with the medical professionals that were examining you? I did not. I I was just so afraid and so embarrassed to admit it. And I think at the time, I didn't even realize that that had happened the week before. I was just so consumed with grief for losing the baby that I didn't think anything about, you know, what had caused it or what had happened, um, as well as there was a lot of guilt put on me by my ex-husband for that event, because when he had pinned me down and had his hand over my mouth, I bit him and it drew blood. And he told me because of that, because I tried to get him off of me by biting me, that I was the abusive one. He was afraid of me. That very night, he refused to sleep in the same room as me because he called me abusive and said that he couldn't even be around me because he was scared of me. So I think I was just so overwhelmed with just guilt and shame and had been manipulated into thinking him pushing me and hurting me was my fault and me trying to defend myself. So I time to admit to anyone that that had happened. When he spoke those words to you, did you at the time recognize that it was a form of manipulation? Or were you unable to articulate it or draw that conclusion? I think deep down, I knew that, but it was very confusing. And it was very confusing just in general to have the person that you love and are in a relationship with, who you're having their baby to physically hurt you. I just remember being very afraid. And uh, silly as it sounds, I was more afraid of losing him, of losing my ex-husband so that I didn't really feel safe or comfortable to to say anything if I did think it was, you know, an abusive tactic for him to say that to me. I, I remember apologizing to him. I don't remember ever getting an apology from him for that event. Um, and I guess that just goes to show how deep the manipulation was that, you know, I he had made me so afraid to lose him and feel so dependent on you know, being in that relationship with him and having that love that I would have done anything to keep the relationship going. So looking back now, a year and a half later, you 
apparently think differently, right? So we, we, you just described yeah. the relation, his behavior towards you as love. Would you characterize that as such now? No, definitely not. When I look back now and, you know, have gone through lots of therapy during this time and have spent a lot of time educating myself on abuse and abusive tactics, I realize now that it was gaslighting that he was using these tactics to keep me in the relationship, to keep abusing me. And I don't believe it was anything he was sorry for. I think it was very purposeful. And I think that was very important for me to realize in my recovery that this abuse and this gaslighting and manipulation after he would physically abuse me was purposeful, that he didn't know what he was doing and that me understanding that now has helped tremendously just in my recovery. Okay. So in in July of 2017, you filed an order of protection or a restraining order against your now ex-husband at the time yeah. you were pregnant, you became pregnant, I believe in February. Is that right? Yeah, about February or March, I became pregnant again. So pretty much immediately after my body finished the miscarriage with the first pregnancy, I became pregnant again. In between that, while I was miscarrying, he did physically assault me again. And then when I got pregnant again, he assaulted me for the third time. And at that third time, I was five months pregnant in July of 2017. And he had thrown me to the floor in an argument. At that point, that's when I did get his commanding officers involved with the Marine Corps. And I did go to the police and I did obtain a DPRO against him, which was granted for one year. What was it like going to his commanding officers? How did they respond? Were they supportive? At first, they were supportive and helpful. They helped get him out of my house because he was refusing to do so. And they did also put a military protection order in place. So I was able to have the civilian court help me with the the domestic violence restraining order. And then the Marine Corps did have a military protection order. So it was nice to kind of have that double protection where I knew if he violated anything at that time, it wouldn't just be, you know, civil consequences, but that he would also face consequences through the military. Then in August, one month later, after you filed the restraining order, your ex-husband filed for divorce. Yes, he did. And was that something that was precipitated by any kind of event in your relationship or was there some other reason for that? It was based purely on the DBRO, me obtaining that and leaving. It was at a time where one of us was going to file for divorce and he happened to be the one to file it and get it done. So you're saying potentially that it was a tactic to have the upper hand in a way because the restraining order was already in place? Perhaps. I think either one of us would have filed for divorce. So I'm not sure what his intentions were with that with filing first. Okay. And then your son was born in November of 2017. Were you in court dealing with the divorce at that time? We're in court constantly and have been ever since I first filed for the domestic violence restraining order. So leading up to Max's birth in November, he had filed for a paternity test stating that I had cheated on him, which I had not. I feel like, again, this was just another tactic to get under my skin to hurt me and to try to somehow take blame off of himself for the abuse by saying that I was a cheating wife. So he filed for a paternity test as well as filed for joint custody. 
which was a bit confusing to receive both of those documents at the same day saying the child isn't his, but he also wants joint custody. So I received that about a week before Max was born, but because of just slow court system and obviously with me having a newborn, I wasn't able to get into court right away. So we didn't end up having that custody hearing until April of 2018. What was the outcome of that case? In April, I was awarded sole legal and physical custody and he received supervised visitation. So the court believed when you shared your domestic violence history with your ex-husband? Yes. And since there was a finding of domestic violence when my original DVRO was granted for one year, the California state law says that if there's a finding of domestic violence, that that parent cannot receive either physical or legal custody until they overcome certain barriers. And so some of those things Mm -hmm. are like attending a better intervention course, And I believe there are a few other things on that list with the law. Did your ex-husband comply with all of the requirements? No, he has not to date. So now almost a year later after that order was made, I don't believe he's even registered for a better intervention course. And then he was also told to take a court-approved parenting course and has not done that either. So it seems like these requirements were put into place to ensure some sort of opportunity was available for your ex-husband to, I guess, in some ways, rehabilitate or learn from the previous behaviors that he had engaged in. And the fact that the court isn't holding him accountable to what they set out, what does that say to you about the court itself? And have you brought this up to the court to ask for enforcement of the orders that they set forth themselves? Yes, Definitely. So I am representing my myself in court, which makes it a little difficult to figure out how to come about bringing this up to the judge. But I have on numerous occasions brought up that he hasn't met the requirements. And even despite not meeting the requirements for obtaining unsupervised visits, the judge still granted him unsupervised visitation, which he now has, and reordered him to take the parenting course, which still has not been completed. So he was reordered to take the course in June of 2018, and it's now December, and he still has not done it. So it really feels like the judge kind of just told him, hey, I'm going to give you what you want and go ahead and take care of these requirements later. And at the end of the day, the person that gets hurt the most is my son because it's his safety that's at risk. But I was even told by a mediator in our court that my ex-husband's right to be a father is more important, that it doesn't matter his history of abuse, that he has a right to be in his son's life and that the court's going to do anything they can to facilitate that. Whereas in my opinion, they should be doing everything they can to protect our son, to make sure that he's safe and that should be the top priority. So I do bring this up. I've brought up case law and brought up different precedents to our judge and showed him different cases where these outcomes have been bad, where an abusive parent is given custody or unsupervised visitation and the child is hurt. And unfortunately, it hasn't been listened to. So I will keep bringing it up and and keep fighting for my son's safety in hopes that, you know, maybe one day we'll get a judge or a mediator that will actually enforce these laws that are in place because the laws are there, the policies are there. It's just a matter of following it. And unfortunately, our family courts don't actually put these safety procedures into place. 
So I want to talk a little bit more about the fact that you mentioned a mediator. My understanding, at least in New York, but maybe across the, the country, different states also adhere to this rule, is that when there is domestic violence in a relationship, that mediation is not appropriate because of the very nature of its coercive process for wanting to generate an outcome and the power imbalance that's inherently at play when you have an abuser and a a victim together forced to come up with a solution that may not be a win-win solution. Can you speak more about California's laws around mediation and domestic violence? So here, the law states that if there is a finding of domestic violence, you can request to be seen separately. So that is what I did during our mediation. We've only had one mediation appointment and I was able to do that. We were seen separately. And I do feel like that was helpful because if I had been in the same room as him, I would not feel safe to speak my mind or really to speak at all. I still get just a lot of fear when I have to see him and a lot of apprehension to to speak or, you know, say what I need to say. So I'm glad that that law was there. At the time, I did have that domestic violence restraining order in place. However, the renewal of my DVRO was denied in September of 2018. So now next month, we have another mediation for our son for a change in visitation, possibly. And I don't know what the law says about if the DVRO isn't current. So I'm hoping that they'll still uphold that and let us meet separately but I'm not certain if there has to be a current restraining order in order for parents to meet separately with the mediator. So in other words, just because there's a history, an acknowledged history by the court of domestic violence, that may not be sufficient to ensure that both parties are separate and that the survivor is kept safe in a mediation process. Correct. Yes. I'm very unsure about that as well as There have been different precautions I've had to take now since the DVRO renewal was denied. For instance, my address was protected when that order was valid. And since the renewal was denied, my ex has relentlessly tried to find out where I live. And that has made me very fearful. He actually tried to find out where I live while I had the restraining order, which was a direct violation of it. And the judge and the cops both did nothing to help me with that. So now I've had to go and like protect my address and get on a federal program to be able to do so and just take other safety measures to make sure that my kids and I can remain safe, even though the court isn't protecting us anymore. So back to the mediation. So would you say that mediation is only helpful for survivors if it can be guaranteed that they have a certain set of processes, including being separate and and feeling safe regardless of what kind of legal documents are present for them just if if one is self-identified as a survivor would you want the mediation to be available to that person yeah definitely i feel like everyone should have the right to feel safe and if two parents don't feel safe next to each other if one is a victim of abuse and doesn't want to do the mediation with the other that option should definitely be available Unfortunately, I fear that in a lot of these cases, I've heard from other survivors that if they come forward saying that they have these fears, rather than it being addressed, they're often sent to co-parenting classes, telling the court telling them that they're not being a good co-parent for wanting to be separate. So it's really difficult. I'm 
fortunate in my case that I was able to meet separate, but I do know that it's not always that way. And a lot of times asking for that separate or voicing your concerns or fears can be bad for the survivor and actually lead to more forced interaction. And possibly retaliatory consequences in the decisions that the court makes. Very much so. So getting back to the Marine Corps, I'm curious to explore because we haven't had a survivor on the show yet who's had any opportunity to really talk about their spouse having been in the military. And I'm curious if that's something you're comfortable sharing about their policies and their practices, if there was, if your pleas carried any weight and if your subsequent actions and efforts to remedy the situation led to any changes in the outcome. Yes, I can definitely speak on that. So my ex, like I said, was active duty Marine Corps. I had called them. There were three incidents of physical violence. At the second time it happened, I had called his commanding officer and told him what happened. They had kept my ex in the barracks for like a weekend and sent him to an anger management program and then sent the both of us to a marriage counseling program. I feel like that just all reiterated a lot of like shared guilt and, you know, shared blame in the abuse, which isn't healthy. Um, but I think perhaps my ex was definitely telling them a whole other story about what was happening. So that happened. And then at the third incident of abuse, when I was pregnant and my ex had pushed me to the floor, I called the commanding officer again, because while lying on the floor, my ex was yelling at me that I needed to get out, that it was his apartment. I wouldn't have it if it wasn't for him. And I had nowhere to go. And I knew that he could go stay on base if needed. So I called his commanding officer and they did get my ex to leave. And they did issue a military protection order, which had certain things like he couldn't contact me directly or indirectly. And he also couldn't be anywhere near our residence. So that was nice and made me feel safe. Later on, though, my ex kept violating both the military protection order and the restraining order, as well as wasn't up, he was not upholding his spousal support and child support obligations. And the military is supposed to take those things very seriously, whether it's violating the court order or violating their own military protection order. And I had gone to his commanding officers numerous times showing proof that he had had people contacting me, that he wasn't paying um, the correct amount or any amount at all for his financial obligations. And they did not help me whatsoever. All of that led to me being evicted with a one month old baby and really no one in the Marine Corps caring whatsoever or helping me, you know, become safe or have any help. Later on, I found out that my ex had not received any sort of punishment from the Marine Corps for all this, not for the abuse, not for violating the military protection order or the uh, civilian orders. When that happened, I took a report to the inspector general of Camp Pendleton, which is where my ex was stationed, and a full investigation was launched. In that investigation, the commanding officers denied that I ever told them that I had been physically assaulted. How is it possible that they could deny that you ever told them when they were the one who issued a restraining order? Doesn't that contradict the very fact that there is proof? (laughs) 
I had called them with the abuse. And so they alleged that I had just called them saying that there was some sort of argument and conflict, but that I had never said that he physically assaulted me. And they asserted that they had made the military protection order based on allegations, but with no proof. And so they kind of covered their tracks saying um, that they were both trying to protect me as well as protect my ex and that they also knew of the civilian orders so that they were kind of going off that in their own order. But they ended up saying that I had not told them that he had physically assaulted me when in reality, I had told them twice on two of the different occasions that he had put his hands on me. So needless to say, when that inspector general investigation came back with those words and saying that my ex still would not receive any sort of military punishment, I was very upset and felt like there was no justice. And I actually went to Congressman Calvert here in California, my local congressman, and had him launch an investigation. That investigation went up to the Pentagon and took, gosh, it took a really long time, took about six months or so for them to complete that investigation. And in that as well, the commanding officers denied that I ever told them there that there was physical abuse. So as much proof as I had, uh, you know, I had call logs showing that I had come to them. I also had a court transcript where one of his commanding officers had testified in our DVRO case stating that I had called him and told him about abuse. In the end, the Marine Corps denied that they had any liability or any knowledge of the physical assault and that therefore no punishment was needed for my ex. So it was very disheartening and felt like, you know, my ex just got away with everything. And he was able to honorably discharge this last June, in June of 2018. I want to get back to your earlier statement that the Marine Corps first started off ordering anger management and co-counseling therapy with you and your ex-husband. Anger management is not appropriate in cases for domestic violence, and neither is co-counseling, actually. So I'm wondering, had you known that at the time? And did you push back on those suggestions? I did not know that at the time. And at the time as well, my ex had convinced me so much that him hurting me was my fault. I mean, I remember the first time when he pushed me down when I was pregnant with the first baby, he said, well, you should have known better to, than to interrupt me. And then turned the whole thing about how it was my fault for biting him, trying to get him off of me. I was so manipulated into thinking I did share responsibility in these in these acts that I didn't know any better than, you know, to fight back on any of that, as well as my ex had convinced me, you know, that he was going to anger management for my good and to show me, you know, that he was a good husband. And I did not know to fight back or to think anything different. But now looking back, I look back at even this marriage retreat we went to with the Marine Corps. And I think it just reiterated in my head and in his head that I should responsibilities for these actions. So definitely I would hope that the Marine Corps or any, you know, counseling agency would not recommend those things in instances of abuse. Amongst those organizations that are actually engaging in best practices, um, we spoke with Phyllis B. Frank of VCS in episode three about batter intervention programs. And we talked about whether they worked or not, which was certainly more appropriate than anger management. And anger management is something that really 
is completely inappropriate for, for batterers, just for our listeners as a reminder, because the choice to abuse is, is exactly that. It's a choice. And people who abuse aren't abusing everybody in their lives. They're just abusing individuals, most likely their partner, and they have the ability to contain their anger in other circumstances. So it's not about anger, it's about power and control. And so it behooves us to, I guess, make sure that anybody who's listening is aware of this and that when organizations, courts, individuals make recommendations that are not appropriate and not safe, most importantly, that we try to push back against it and hold them accountable. And I'm wondering if there's anything you can do now to bring awareness to this issue to the military to make sure that their practices are being examined when it comes to how they deal with domestic violence in their ranks. You know, it's definitely something I've thought about in the future about addressing that from the military and seeing if they can, you know, reformulate how they deal with it. There was also so in going to base and making these claims of abuse, they had recommended for me to go to counseling and they also made a recommendation of different classes. So not being a Marine, I wasn't forced to go to these classes, whereas I know my ex was forced to go to a couple different classes on base. And I wasn't privileged to know which classes he was told to go to, but they had tried sending me to a class about abuse. And it again, I walk into this class on base And it was with all male Marines. I was the only female and the only civilian there. And I just got the feeling that I was in this class with a bunch of male Marines who had been accused of abuse, yet they had sent me to this class as well, because it was supposed to be kind of about like reuniting and, you know, having a healthy relationship, but it was not a safe situation at all. I ended up having a really severe PTSD attack in that class and walked out and left So I don't think their recommendations are very safe. Perhaps they are doing the best they can with the resources they have, but there's a lot of education that they need to be a part of in order to better help survivors. Let me just make sure I understand that correctly. You were asked to participate in a class with other Marines who were accused of abuse because you were accused of abuse too, cross-accused by your ex, or because you were understood to be a victim of abuse and it was meant to be create a situation of exploring potentially reconciliation and rehabilitation. Yes, the latter. So um, it, from the Marine Corps as well, I should mention that they do have a, I'm sorry, I'm trying to think of what it's called, the IDC. It's something disciplinary commission. The IDC, which is through their family advocacy program, which is there to protect any person in the military or spouse or child who comes in and makes any allegations of abuse, this group is there. And so that's who I went to when I told them about the abuse and they made what is called a determination. And they determined that my ex had committed physical and emotional abuse against me. And then after the military protection order was put in place, so months later after I originally went in and he was still harassing me, I again went in and said, hey, this is still going on. And they made another determination of emotional abuse against me. There were these findings of both physical and emotional abuse on on base through the Marine Corps, labeling me as the victim and him as the perpetrator. And yet even with those findings, 
all they really did for him was recommend counseling and recommend counseling and classes for me, but no discipline. And what was the outcome that you were hoping to get? I was hoping that he would be dishonorably discharged. I don't feel that someone that physically assaults their spouse or anyone for that matter should be an honorable member of our military. They're sworn in to protect and serve, not to lay harm on those closest to them. So now in December, 2018, you're still in court and forced actually to communicate with your ex, despite you being the primary custodial parent through what I understand is a parenting app. Is that correct? Yes, we communicate via a parenting app. And then we also are forced to meet in person for the exchanges of visitation for our son. Are the exchanges in a public area that's safe? They are. I finally was able to get that put into an order. At first, our order was very vague and we would meet anywhere. And so there were oftentimes he would have me meet him in closed down empty places where I didn't feel safe and I would have to call an officer to be present. And when I did that, he would become upset and send me harassing messages. But fortunately, now we are in a spot where we do meet in a public place. And what are your thoughts about this parenting app? Because my understanding is when there's a history of domestic violence, um, that communication should be limited or not exist at all, especially if in the case of you having custody, you get to make decisions. Right. I think it can become very problematic. And I think the idea behind it is great because it records everything. I can go on and get a transcript, bring it to the judge and show what's on there. There have been numerous times my ex has used the app called Talking Parents to harass me, to accuse me of abuse, just to make all sorts of allegations and harassing messages. And I have brought those to the judge and the judge has not really cared or done anything at all. So I feel like it in a way just facilitates him being able to continue to abuse me, to emotionally abuse me without any consequence. I don't really feel like the court actually takes it seriously or monitors it as they should. Is it that they don't take it seriously or is it that they don't understand it, that they don't even recognize it as abuse? Perhaps. And that's one of the reasons my DVRO renewal was rejected was the judge said there was no emotional abuse. So that's one thing that I'm in the appeals process right now and have lots of cases of case law and showing how the messages I'm receiving are abusive. And hopefully if we can get our court officials educated on course of control and emotional abuse, then maybe we can start to see this and actually put some standards into place to protect victims of abuse because it's not always physical. What has been the impact of all of this, the weight of the emotional abuse on you and your ability to parent and your ability to live and thrive? It's very stressful. um, And it's also taken a huge toll on me financially because I'm always in court. I'm fortunate that I'm self-employed and so I can move my hours around to attend court, but it just becomes stressful and having to find babysitters to be able to go to court and take care of stuff and become stressful and trying to protect my older child when we have to do the exchanges for our son and making sure that she's safe and taken care of. I feel like I'm constantly just watching out and on the lookout for um, what's going to come next. And it has led to some anxiety, which fortunately has been helped 
through just my fitness and making sure that I'm taking care of myself. Did you start powerlifting during your relationship or had you been doing that as a form of strength and fitness already? I had been powerlifting before my relationship with my ex-husband. And so while in our relationship and while we had arguments and when he got abusive, it kind of always became my sort of therapy. So I've always seen a counselor and made sure I've taken care of my mental health, but in taking care of my physical health by powerlifting, it's really empowered me to know that I can be strong and knowing that if I can lift these heavy weights and get stronger physically, I know my mind can catch up too. And I know that my mental, my emotional health are both getting better because I'm physically taking care of myself. I guess it's probably very rare for you not to be engaging in fitness because that's part of your job. But when there are times, let's say when you're on vacation, do you feel that not being able to maintain your body health is something that impacts your emotional health as well? I do. And I will say that I'm that person that goes on vacation and finds the closest gym. But there are times, for example, like when my kids are sick, definitely going through you know, the winter season and with the kids being sick, not being able to go to the gym, I do notice that I'm just not as clear headed and that I'm not able to deal with stress as well as I could when I'm remaining physically active. Do you have any suggestions for other survivors about how they can access body wellness in situations where they may be financially challenged or time challenged or just not have the motivation because of all the weight of what they're going through? Definitely. I think my biggest tip always is to, first of all, just make yourself that priority. And I know that's so hard, especially as the protective mother, we're taking care of our kids and we have this added weight of there's been abuse. But remembering that I truly feel that we can be the best mothers and the best parents we can be when we're happy and we're healthy. And that's going to lead to the best example for our children. Because at the end of the day, they're not going to do what we tell them to do. They're going to do what we're showing them we do. So making sure we take care of ourselves. I think a great way to do that is to schedule it. I schedule my workouts and make sure that I don't let anything interrupt that. So if it's on my planner, it's in my schedule, then I'm going to do it. And then I also make sure to do family activities. So that's another one. If you know, if you're on a budget and maybe you don't have a lot of time, turn it into a family activity of going for a hike or there's tons of free workout videos on YouTube or just all over the internet that you can do and even stuff you can do with very young children. So there are a lot of options out there. And if you make yourself make the time and make it a habit, it becomes a lot easier and then you'll feel a lot better about yourself and I think be able to handle all of your emotional stress a lot better. You also talked about having a therapist and how that's helped change and transform your thinking about your relationship. How do you know whether a therapist is a right fit? Because a lot of the therapists out there who are working in quote unquote relationships um, don't have domestic violence or trauma training. How do you assess as a lay person whether this person has the skills to help you through um, your challenges and, and transform your thinking about your what you thought was a healthy or a healthy relationship, I guess, into what recognizing that it was a dynamic that was power and control. That is a great question, and I have gone through a lot of therapists because I am not afraid 
to say no and to stop therapy if I find that that person is not right for me and not helping my mental health. So one thing I do when looking for a therapist is I will call and directly ask them if they have dealt with domestic violence before and what training they have on it. So I think that's helpful in the first place because the person hasn't dealt with it before, then automatically I would say don't go to them. Another thing is making sure that you're open and honest with your therapist. And if you are getting feedback, I had a therapist at one point say, well, at least your son gets to see his father and that, and that's good for him. And I stopped immediately and said, no, this is not safe for my son. And if you knew anything about domestic violence and everything I've told you about how he abused me, you would not think this is good. So being vocal, I, it's taken me a long time to get that courage to be able to speak up and, and defend myself and defend my children and my point of view. But if you're getting any sort of comments like that, like telling you, you should compromise in your situation and don't get me wrong. Sometimes we need to compromise, but if you're compromising your safety and your, your well-being and your children's safety, that's not a therapist you should be seeing. So I think just learning more about abuse and control yourself. For me, I listen to, to podcasts and I read books. I've you know, read books by Barry Goldstein and Lundy Bancroft, and that's helped me understand abuse a lot more. And so if I'm seeing conflicting statements in the therapist I'm seeing, then I know that they're not the right fit, if that makes sense. So avoid stereotypical language that victim blames that elevates parental rights over child and survivor safety. Yes. And I, and I think another two um, would be, as we talked earlier, if they're encouraging couples therapy, perhaps if you're still in the relationship and, you know, telling your therapist that you're being abused and they're suggesting couples therapy, I would again say that that therapist doesn't know anything about domestic violence and you should probably find someone new. I just want to turn to your name because my understanding is you changed your name. I did. Yes. So, so can you talk about that? <laughs> I would love to. So I changed my name legally to Sarah Strong. Our divorce is still not final. So December 2018, it's been almost 18 months. It's been 17 months now since, since I left, since our date of separation. And I knew that this divorce was going to be long and it was going to be messy. So when I left, I went and filed to change my name legally. And I wanted to do that to something new. I don't have a relationship with my father and I could not wait to get rid of my abuser's last name. And so I chose a name that I felt embodied who I am as well as who I want to continue to be. So Sarah is strong. And not only does that help me in my fitness career, but it also is just a reminder to myself that this is who I am. I'm strong. I can get through these court battles. I can get through what I know is going to be continued harassment and abuse. And I can be strong and continue to hopefully help others and show them how to, you know, get through the court system and, and leave abusive relationships and take care of their children. So it's for me, a good reminder of just who I want to be and who I want to live up to. Well, Sarah Strong, Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. And I wish you the best of luck in your ongoing court situation. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. 
The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.